Welcome to the Misfit Behaviorist Podcast. Join your hosts, Audra Jensen and Caitlin Beltran, here to bring you evidence-based strategies with a student-centered focus. Listen weekly for practical and functional advice, along with actionable tips tailored for ABA professionals, special education teachers, and anyone dedicated to supporting students with diverse needs. Ready? Let's get started. Audra and Caitlin were here, but we thought we'd just start talking and see where this goes. And so today, one of the first things we want to talk about is a viewer question, or I think it was on Facebook or Instagram or somebody. So somebody had this question. I thought it was a really good question that I want to talk about. So this is the question. The school teachers and the consultants tend to have a varying view on how things should be done. I completely understand where a teacher can be burnt out, especially with the unemployment shortage of assistance. However, how do we get them to understand that we are not there to criticize what they are doing, but to assist in behaviors that may escalate before they get better, but in a relatively short span? That's a really good point. Um, Because if we just continue to, if we continue to just let please the individuals and reward the wrong behavior, we're actually setting them up for failure. I thought that was a really good question that has a lot of kind of pieces into it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've chatted about this before in that whenever you are consulting or working with a teacher, like almost immediately you feel that because you're like, no matter what, I'm going to be giving you more work to do. Like whether I'm agreeing with you, validating your approach, like loving everything you're doing at some point, my job is to make a suggestion, which I'm sure they somewhat appreciate on some level, but also it's physically going to be something added to their plate, which I hate, but yeah. to get to the question, it's a necessary evil to get to progress. And I found over time that a lot of teachers, they get to us at the point where they're in such frustration level that it's hard for them to accept the things that they have to do, which kind of sucks. You know, a lot of times they want just take the kid, be done. You know, they're at that point. So I think a lot of what we need to be better about is catching those situations way before that point of frustration is helping the teachers identify what kind of supports that, that would help them. You know, every teacher that I've met, their heart is always in the right spot, especially ones who have been there a long time. They know those kind of precursor behaviors or students who are kind of on the radar that kind of need to be, they need support. And sometimes they feel like because they have so many years of experience that they can just tackle it themselves where, you know, if they brought in somebody to support them earlier in the process, and I know a lot of districts, and I think yours or two are going to the the RTI system or the MTSS system where they're, they're starting to put these place, these supports in place beforehand, which is so helpful. So that when we are called in, it's kind of the professional, the kind of the end result we're, we're not just whack-a-mole and trying to figure out the, I mean, everything's already on fire. That's what I always said with my colleagues is like, sometimes we're always called in and everything's already on fire. Call me when you see this first spark and let's see if we can stop it before it happens. And so that's one thing. And I also feel like what you were saying, like a veteran teacher versus a new teacher and everyone has a different style and approach, you know, and I always try and I kind of, I loved meeting and getting to know the new teachers and letting them know, like, 
it doesn't ever look like a sign of weakness if you're asking for help, because I think there's that stigma sometimes. Like I just started, it's my first year. I don't want to be like knocking on people's doors. And I always say my suggestion that I would do when I was teaching is ask someone for help in the sense of saying, what would, can you come in and like, tell me, give me feedback, what I'm doing wrong. Obviously there's a way to do it. And that's going to make or break your approach. Like, yes, if you're a new teacher and you're banging on your principal's door by lunch, like, well, this kid shouldn't be here. And this Mm -hmm. is all wrong. You got to fix this. That's not the right way to go about it. Mm -hmm. But if you're just saying, look, I'm trying these things, this kid's a little squishy. Like, can someone just come in and lay eyes and tell me if I'm on the right track? Yes, super. got a foot in the door. Yeah. One thing that I always taught all of my staff as they were going in any, you know, BCBAs I had sending in any RBTs I had going into a classroom that the number one thing for them was to be asked back. And what I mean by that was their goal in going into a classroom, the very first thing they should be doing is whatever they can do to be wanted back into the classroom. So you can go into a classroom that is absolutely the most atrocious running classroom you've ever seen you've got to find that one thing that's running well, or you go into a, you know, a teacher who's absolutely done with the student and they have so many behaviors, you've got to find the one thing that they can do to help them a little bit. Because if you go in and you come out and you give them this huge list of 20 things to do, or you know, take these, this super complicated data collection that we want you to do, it's just they shut down and, and then you're not getting anywhere. So the one thing I always told them, the first thing for you, the one thing you should do in going in is be able to ask back and be asked back. So have that build that relationship of trust with them, with the teachers, and so that they want you to come back. I love that. And I think it gets to them seeing us as a real person too. So I know when I first started, I was thinking that, okay, these teachers have so much to do. I'm coming in for this kid and this issue. I should help them right away. And I want to give them something as soon as possible. But then, like you said, they're seeing us as this, you know, robot who's giving them the sheet of paper to mark things on. And so even just like that little connection, I guess I used to think it was almost a bad thing to have that human connection because it was like, I don't know, taking more time or somehow wrong. And now I see it as like you said, I want them to see me as a real person who's trying to help them. So I love going the idea of going in with the mindset of your number one goal and your first observation should just be that they want you back in your room. And the next time they hear, oh, Caitlin's going to pop by again next week, they're not like, oh, again. They're like, oh, okay, that could be okay. So I thought of I thought of five tips with a little bonus one of kind of addressing this question of what can we do to get the teacher buy-in? So the first thing I thought of was to always find something positive to talk about. A lot of the the observations that I'd have to go in, I'd write up a full observation report. I always had a much larger section of those positives that you can pull out. There's always stuff that can be done. And if especially if you're going in and making an observation or a, creating a report for the, the teacher to use, you know, a lot of times they actually like that. What can I work on? Yeah. But I always really want to focus on those positives. So that's the first thing. Tip number two was to provide one small thing for them to do. So even if I create a long list of things that they they can eventually work on, I want just one little thing for them to do by the next time I see them. So if I'm coming back the next week, I'll give them one thing. I want you to just I want you to create a token board and try it out. Or I want you to provide three pieces of positive praise to that student every hour, something very specific, something very small that they can do. And then when you check back the next time, it's really easy. How did that one thing go? And then you can address all the hundreds of other things you want to work on. And then my, my tip number three was to provide them 
ways for them to see objectively how things are going. So that's where kind of our data comes in. It's very nice for them to see. So a lot of times we'll get teachers who are like, you know, I feel that this is getting better. I feel that this is worse or I, I can't do anything else. I've already done everything and helping them see kind of those objective measures, like behavior is getting better. You know, it kind of feels like you're still kind of in the quagmire, but behaviors really are getting better. And look at this. This is really nice. Can I just say, I think that's so important because I noticed this past week, we came back obviously from winter break, January 2nd. So we had technically a short week, even though it was the longest short week ever. It was a four day week. And I feel like several classrooms I went into this week, those same classrooms were saying right before break, it's getting so bad. It's getting so bad. And then this week when I checked in, it was like, things are really good lately. And I'm like, one of them, it was like Tuesday at like 1130. So like, I appreciated it, but I was like, how, how can you even have a, a measure of how it's been? We've been back yeah. for three hours. So I think we forget <laughs> as humans, how important our perspective is. Like we all came back tired, maybe refreshed, yeah. just hadn't been much time. So to yeah. make any kind of judgment, I thought was, it was just like an interesting kind of thing that made me smile a little bit because you just forget how much your own perspective is so different from another person's perspective. I've had so many situations kind of on the flip side where either a parent or teacher is like, you know, things are absolutely atrocious or getting worse. And we pull out the daily data and we're like, actually, according to his daily reports, he's actually doing much better. You may be seeing it, kind of feeling it because maybe he's expressing it differently, but, you know, objectively getting better. I always share in my trainings when I was teaching there was a student who like his behavior was screaming at the top of his lungs and it was short, but he would just, ah, ah. And so we would like click it because it was so frequent. And by the end of the day, you're just like, oh my gosh, like leaving with a headache. And I always share that until we started tracking it, I was way off the mark. If you had asked me, how is it going? Because literally if someone's screaming in your face 25 times versus 50 times versus 75, like it kind of is all a blur. And once we started tracking it and we put in this intervention and I remember the BCBA showing me as compared to baseline and she asked me, how's it going? And I was like, literally the same, no difference. And then she showed me it was 75. Now it's 50. Now it's 40. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how did I not notice that again? You're being screamed at 40 times a day. So it wasn't like, it wasn't something you would just notice on your yeah, own. And when you're in a situation that's right here, it's hard mm-hmm. to see kind of those subtle differences. So if you're tackling a behavior that's this big and yes. it is making difference, but if you're right here in the behavior, he's still screaming, you know, and it's yes. still by the end of the day, your nerves are fried. Yep. You're not going to see that like, until you have somebody else kind of step back and look at the whole picture. Totally. That I just always remember that as like a light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh, maybe there's something to this data piece like really early cool. in my career. Okay. So tip number four was to bri- provide them, and I mean the teacher, positive reinforcements for their efforts. And that could be, I mean, I used to take in donuts and Starbucks, you know, gift cards. Right. It, it's something to make them feel like they're, it, it, oh, they're what? valued. That's the word I was looking for. Make them feel like they're valued and something's important to them. And then also specifically, just like we do with the students, we want to be specific about our praise with them. I'm very careful about giving specific behavior praise to the teachers, their efforts. You know, I, I so appreciate that this data is so clean today. I can see exactly what happened throughout the day. I really appreciate it. It makes my job easier. And so just being specific with them too. And they really appreciate that. 
I think that's the most important thing of what you just said is that genuine feedback where it's like, wow, I really do appreciate it. I think earlier when I started, I would be more like, I'll bring you coffee. I'll bring you a don't, you know, something like that. And I wasn't not genuine, but I feel like people have mixed feelings about that. And maybe people are like, okay, sure, whatever. And even though it was a genuine effort on my part, to me, I know when I receive just a genuine compliment, nothing beats that. Like, wow. Well, there's someone- a difference between, hey, that's really nice. And wow, yes. you value what I did. You know, there's, right. there's a definite difference between those two. For sure. Oh, yeah. Tip number five. What would you do? What can you do to take the load off of them? So sometimes in our position, we're like in this bubble. We we know all the things that in a perfect world would be done, could be done, and the student's behavior would improve or the skills would be learned or whatever it is, but we don't have perfect bubble situations in school. And so what can we do as the BCBA or the behavior consultant or the teacher mentor or whatever to take some of that load off of the teacher so that that bubble is kind of expanded so we can help them create that. And so, you know, if we're looking at different data collection measures, what is it that they can do realistically within their classroom and those students? And what can we do to help them and support them? So maybe it's a data collection system that needs to be unique to that teacher, something Mm -hmm. that they can do. You know, I've had some teachers who can do a very quick yes, no type things. And other ones can give me lots of anecdotal notes about situations that happen. So really what can what can we do to help them? Some of the data collection and stuff we take like on daily student behaviors, it's really easy for me to graph and to kind of analyze that. And so rather than early on, I try to show them how to do it, you know, thinking it would help me out. It didn't really help me out. And I'd rather just give, leave the stack of data sheets there. I'll take them I'll you know, I can put those in in 15 minutes and analyze it. So, and I would take that away from them. They were so grateful for that. I was thinking too, the first example going back, it was like in tip number one or two, when you're talking about a token board, like, can you make a token board and try that? And I'm thinking of maybe two different classrooms that I work in where one, I would definitely ask the teacher if she had a token board in use already that she could duplicate. And another, I would never even think of asking the teacher to make it. I would just be like, let's try a token board. What is he like? I'll make one for him. Or I have a couple extra because and they're such different settings, right? Like we call them uh, self-contained classroom. One, the teacher has fewer kids, more staff. They're making that stuff all the time. Whereas if I'm in the first grade inclusion classroom, maybe she has one para or two, but they're not used to making those. And it would the amount of time it would take her to make yes. them is so not worth me asking to do. And then hopefully it gets at showing that teacher that I'm invested too. And I want to work and I can show yeah. it to the kid. And that part I think is to piggyback off of this whole theme What can I do to help set up the process? But also, again, I think when I first started, I was like, okay, I'll give it to you. And that will be where my help comes in. But now I'm more of the mindset where I'm like, would it be helpful for me to show this to the student? Because I know your time is so precious if you're teaching a whole class versus if it was a smaller classroom. Like maybe it's really helpful to just have an adult spend quality time with that kid for 20 minutes and go over how that works. Right. And in my mind, I'm so laser focused on this student in your room. I'm, I could be forgetting that, like, again, you have that whole other class to teach. So although obviously you want the teacher to have the connection with the student as well, sometimes it can be helpful to just offer your time in those settings. And then you're also going to have the difference of if you have an RBT or somebody you're mentoring in, there's a difference between a teacher who's actively working with, you know, 30 students and doing stuff to help them 
and then mentoring somebody to learn the skill set that you're talking about. So you may you may be able to very quickly do a token board for this teacher over here, but this RBT or BCBA training or behavior specialist that you're training, you might want to show them how to do that because they need the skill set too. So it's kind of, it's always dependent on your audience as well as situations. So, yeah. Yeah. We don't have any, we do have some paraprofessionals that are working towards their RBT in my school, but I don't have any, like I'm a one man show. So I don't have any <laughs> supervisees or trainees or anything right now, maybe one day in the future where that's all they're doing, yeah. which I think I've seen more and more schools or they are, they're know, moving that way. I, I would love that. That would be yeah. so helpful. I've been in the field so long that I went from, you know, when I got into the field, what, 15 years, 20, I guess it's over 20 years now. When, when we started my son, there were no behavior specialists at all in any of the schools. And um, then it went from, oh, and it was fully paid, you know, privately paid ABA services outside of school. That's all it was. And then we saw the transition from that into insurance payment. And then we sort of started to see, there was this weird surge of they let some people into the schools. And then there was a lot of litigation. And then they pushed all the, the private consultants out of the schools. So we saw that happen. <laughs> and then they're moved. Finally, they're moving now towards having in-house BCBAs, which is great because then they have control over the, the situations in their school and it, it does provide them some protection. So now they're moving from BCBAs to full behavior support programs where they have, you know, RBTs and other people too. It's just kind of fun to see the whole gamut yeah. happening. <laughs> I remember this is totally dating myself, but I was literally sitting in my BCBA class in my first semester and the professor was like, oh my gosh, did you see the news? They finally approved lots of ABA therapy through insurance. Right. At the time I was like, what is happening? I don't know how, what yeah. the meaning of this. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, like now it's so not taken for granted. It's it's still it's hard. Kind of pendulum me. is swinging the other but way. It's shifted so. Huge. Yeah. We were, my husband was working at Microsoft at the time and Microsoft was the very first insurance company to do that because, well, it was Microsoft and everybody there is autistic. And so they had an organization and they had self-funded because it was Microsoft, you know, they have all this money. So it was self-funded insurance and they had this group of parents and I wasn't in that group, but I was one of the, the patients. We were one of the patients that weren't some of the first ones that they came together. They went to the insurance provider. They created the benefit. They explained what it was, what they needed, and then they created it. So it was that one. And then military was the next one. And we happened to be military too. So we kind of, once those started happening, then the other ones, but now we're at the point where everybody funds it. And now insurance has their hands into everything. And they're telling all the providers what to do and where to go. And if there was one, somebody commented that they had switched from, this isn't at all what we're talking about, but I think it's interesting, but they had switched from the ABLES to the VB map and the insurance, or it was the other, I don't remember which way it was, but the insurance company had denied it because for whatever reason, you know, they just decided that that, that assessment wasn't, they need to have evidence of that. I'm like, they're wow. So the insurance companies are telling the providers what to do anyway. That's a whole, whole other, that's a whole topic we can go into <laughs> it at a later time. <laughs> it really is. All right. Well, those are our five tips to getting teacher buy-in. And if you like what we're talking about, then I guess subscribe or whatever it is. Comment below. I have, I'll share with everybody a classroom daily report that I used with inclusion classrooms. It was just really easy for 
teachers and and both gen ed and special ed teachers connect when they don't have staff in there all the time. And so I'll put that in the show notes. I tell you, we're just figuring this out every day. (laughs) We're going to give this a try and see if we can be of some help. So we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Misfit Behaviorists and be sure to tune in next week for more tips and tricks. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.